hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. You ever hear one of those stories that just makes you say, wow, they are amazing. Well, today is one of those shows. How does a gay kid in the 1950s and 60s Alabama grow up in such oppression only to move to Beverly Hills and go on to have an illustrious career as an interior designer to such notable clients as Telly Savalas, Rock Hudson, and Liz Taylor, and befriend the likes of Lana Turner and many more? Bernardo Puccio's life and career is as educational as it is exciting. His thoughts on life, success, fortune, and being gay in America in the 1950s and today will inspire you to live your life to its fullest and to follow your passion like never before. Be prepared to be a better version of yourself within the next hour. Before we start, do you know the seven thinking errors that separate the financially struggling from the financially successful? Knowing could mean the difference between your struggle and success with money. Get your free copy of our latest ebook, The Seven Thinking Errors That Prevent Financial Success, to see if you're on the path to financial success. We actually touch on several of them slightly in today's show. Get the ebook at defreeguys.com forward slash 175. Stick around to the end of the show to see how you could win a free copy of Bernardo's book. Now, on with the show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere, so banking fits into your life, not the other way around. Welcome, Bernardo, to Queer Money. We appreciate having you. My pleasure to be here. Awesome. I think this is going to be very inspirational, I think, for our audience to, to hear your story and, and what has transpired or led to your success. I want to start off with, you said that you were a fragile boy with Italian immigrant parents who ran a small grocery store in a small community in Birmingham, Alabama. And this was about the 50s or 60s in Alabama? That's right. Correct. Just to provide some, some background, when did you learn that you were gay and what was it like finding out and growing up gay in 1950s Alabama? Well, you know, as a child growing up, I was one of five children. As a young kid, my favorite toy is is when you read my book, you will find out, was not a baseball or a toy soldier or anything. It was my mother's wedding dress. So I think (laughs) she must have known. And I obviously knew that I was definitely different. Got you. I, I can relate. When I was a kid, my sister and I, my mother was a homecoming queen and she kept that dress. And when my sister and I were younger, we used to play. Every once in a while, I would put it on without, of course, my dad seeing. <laughs> so exactly. I, I, and that's I, in my book, too. When yeah. my other, my father was coming home, I'd go run and hide and take it off. Exactly. Gotcha. I think that's something that most young boys have learned, whether we were born in the 40s, 50s, or 80s, or 90s, or maybe even in the 2000s, 2000s. 2010s. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you know, I think my mother knew that I was so different. And I obviously knew that my favorite toy was her wedding dress. Yeah. So that was the first clue of being gay. Yeah. So your mother knew, you think that your mother knew that you were different. Did she know that different meant gay or just that you were different in some way, shape or form? 
You know, in those days, people really did not discuss gay and whether you were gay or not. They just, and when you read my book also, my mother tried to teach me to be different, uh, not to be as feminine and, and do the things that normal boys usually do. Right. So she tried to teach me in many ways. But uh, I think she was getting me ready, preparing me for what was to come in my future life that uh, did come in. She was a great help in preparing me for that. Yeah. You know, it's it's unfortunate, I think, that even kids struggle with, parents struggle with this today, that they understand what can happen when their child or kids can understand what may happen to them or actually have it happen to them when they realize that they they fall somewhere outside of society's norms. And, and my mother knew that because, and yet she t- didn't try to tell me how exactly what to do and how to do it. She just directed me in a way that was, it wasn't until I was in my 70s that I realized what she had really tried to do was to prepare me for my life to come. And she knew I was destined to do something really unusual and creative. Nice. Well, and ultimately, that's the mother and father's responsibility, right? Prepare you for right. what's to come. And they have to you figure know, out you, how to help you navigate that. All you can do is that. guide your children in and, and, and the best way you can. Exactly. You can't live their life. Exactly. So... I'm wondering, you know, growing up in that sort of an environment, not necessarily your household, but in 1950s, 60s Alabama, and realizing that you were different, you didn't fit in with the norm. I wonder, did you grow up with any sort of limiting beliefs that you had to sort of overcome and and, and find your strength and your purpose? No, I had no limited beliefs. Um, I had such a vivid imagination as a child <laughs> and as an adult as well that my parents just gave me freedom. And as I say in my book so vividly, I spent most of my life enjoying the movies. And I sort of escaped in the movies. Mm-hmm. I visualized myself having a great life as they were portrayed in the movies in those days. And the beautiful people, the beautiful clothes, jewelry, and all of the settings. And that's exactly what I created in my life. But I did all that through visualization as a very young child and carried it into my adult life. Did you do that as an intentional practice, or do you think it was just a, a byproduct of which, of your interests? I don't think it was intentionally. I just think it was because I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. And as I watched and loved it more and more, that it just became my way of life that I wanted. So when I was in my early 20s, I left Alabama after having an incredible life with my first lover there. And uh, I explain it vividly in the book. But I left at 23 because I had come to California to visit. And I fell in love with the beautiful people, the palm trees and the weather. And I figured this is exactly where I can come (laughs) to be who I wanted to be. And it's just been the most incredible 51 years of paradise to me. Nice. It's a little bit different than Alabama out there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. <laughs> Although uh, friends of ours have recently visited Alabama, and they said they've never had better shrimp than any anywhere in the world than Alabama. Well, the food is wonderful. Uh, <laughs> you know, we have a movie, An Ordinary Couple, is the title of a documentary of my uh, husband and myself. And we go back there periodically. We've had a couple of showings of our film there. And the people are wonderful. The food is exceptional. And it is a great place to live. And I must say, it is growing. But you have to understand, it's still the South. And it has a lot 
uh, to come to be like California or New York. Mm -hmm. And it will someday, perhaps. Definitely. We have hope. Yeah, we we hear that the beaches there are really nice. So maybe we can uh, do a little bit of uh, our gay magic on the beach towns there and turn them, <laughs> yeah, exactly you turn would them be into wonderful because the beaches are magnificent. I, that was one of the reasons I came here. Laguna Beach was my favorite first stop, and it was so gorgeous. And I would spend every weekend there, sitting on the coast and just looking out to the ocean and dreaming of what I wanted to do. And I did everything I really wanted to do, but yet there's still more I'm going to do. That's yeah, awesome. Absolutely. You know, it's so funny. I, I have to say this. Um, I We had Chinese food last night and my fortune cookie said that you can't achieve your dreams if you don't dream. And it's obvious that from a very early age, you started dreaming and your dreams turned into something, right? You did something with them. They weren't just dreams. You took the next step of turning it into some sort of action, taking action on those dreams. Well, I think that's what gave me such a great life as an interior designer, because I visualize everything that I do before I do it. And it was the same thing I did with my life. I visualize myself living in this magnificent environment. And I do that for my clients. When they ask me to do their homes, and I've done so many, over 10,000 homes, but I visualize it exactly the way it's supposed to be done, and then I create it. And a client would say to me, how did you do that? (laughs) And I can't explain it to them because they would think I'm completely crazy. I visualize everything, and that's how I lived, visualizing my life. That, that's amazing. Uh, and, you know, as you're listening to this, let, you know, think about that, that idea of picturing what you want your life to look like, whether that is the interior of your home, the kind of car that you drive, where you exactly. live, the job that you have. Picture what you want your life to look like. And that is so true. You must visualize yourself driving that car and living in that home or having the perfect man or woman or whoever you want, you know, you have to visualize yourself living it and doing it. And that's what I did. And sometimes it was harder than I have other things to do. But uh, I seem to, at 75, I have accomplished so much. And as I said earlier, I still have so much I want to do. Sounds so- like it. I, th- I think there's a lot of people who listen to this who probably would be very eager to replicate your life in some manner in their own. (laughs) Exactly. But you know, you have to really believe in yourself, more importantly, because if you can't believe in yourself, there's no one else going to. And your first impression is when you walk in on a job interview or whomever you're meeting, you've got to believe yourself. Right. And people feel if you're insecure or not sure of yourself. And I always try to say that, you know, I was good enough. I'm good enough for the, to do this and nothing is going to take him away from me. I believe in myself. Absolutely. So I think it sounds like it's an important ingredient in your success has been this visualization to the extent that you're comfortable sharing. What exactly does that, does that look like? Do you sit in like a meditative state? Do you close your eyes? Do you just put yourself in, in the space that you're trying to redesign? How do you execute on that exactly? Well, to tell you the truth, when when I really want to get into a state of mind where I have to create and design, I go into silence, total silence, and I just uh, don't want anything around me except maybe I will put on soft, beautiful music. And then I know my 
program of what I'm going to be designing, and then I get into it. I love to have classical music going in the background and just escape into what I am creating. And that's how I did it when I did my, wrote my book, five years to write it. But I would just put on beautiful background music, and I would sit, and I wrote all my book, entire book, 209 pages, from memory. By hand. By hand. And uh, it took me almost five years, as I said. And But I remembered it all from total memory in my life. I had no notes. I had no, no one to talk to. They were all deceased. And so, therefore, I did it all from my own memory as a child of three months old up to the wow. present day. So I thought that was incredible that I had. That was an asset to have because having a photographic memory is really a God's gift because when I walk into a home, I can walk through it and remember everything that's in it and the colors and every detail. And 20 years later, I'll go into it and say, oh, this is new or that's new. You yeah. still have that. And the client will say, how in the world do you remember that? <laughs> so it's been an asset, I must say. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's amazing. Use the gifts that you have, right? Yeah. You know, God gives you certain things. You must take them. Don't let them go to waste. Exactly. Everyone doesn't have them. I imagine as the boy in the movie theater in Alabama, you were, you were visualizing your successful life or this, this big grand life that you wanted to live. And then when you went out to California, you were probably still doing an iteration of that. When and how did you realize that you were going to be an interior designer of all the other things that you could have been? Well, you know, it's very interesting that you asked that question because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so when I was going to school, all the school plays I produced, directed, did the sets and the costumes. And I knew it had to be something to do with the arts, art theater. But after I got out of high school and was in all the drama classes and art classes, I went to business college and for two years I majored in business administration. And then I realized I had enough of that and that wasn't <laughs> really going to be, it wasn't creative for me. Yeah. So then I studied at the Conservatory of Music in Birmingham, Alabama, and I studied voice and music, piano and dance. And I studied there for quite a while and I really enjoyed it. But then I also realized that wasn't really what I wanted to do with my life. It wasn't until I really started working in the design business and doing window display in the department store. Mm -hmm. And I became so good at that, and it was so easy for me. And then they asked me to go into the furniture business, the furniture department of the store. And I was very easy. And I studied with one of the biggest interior designers in Birmingham as her protege. And I worked with her for three years. And... After that, I became, she said I was better than she could ever be. Oh, and so well. then I, I just was in the interior design business. And uh, it's just been a natural, natural talent. It's like a singer who can sing or a dancer. It was just a natural talent for me. And so whatever background I learned from her and studies was really handy because it really came in. I just fell into the natural art of an interior designer. And it's been the easiest. It's never been work for me. Yeah. It's just been a natural talent that God gave me and gave me. Well, it's clear that there were things that were happening all throughout your life that kind of led up to this, right? That the things that you enjoyed doing as a child, the things that you did in school, 
You know, I, I think it's the book Outliers that says that you have to put in 10,000 hours to become uh, proficient or an expert at something. It sounds like throughout your life, you put in those hours uh, doing things that you thought were fun that produced or at least helped to get you to that point that when you became the interior designer, that you did it the way that you wanted to and the way that you love doing it. It's exactly right. And, you know, my mother always allowed me to be and do what I wanted to do. They were in the store working all the time with a family grocery business. I would be at home and I would redecorate the house. I would repaint. (laughs) I would rearrange the furniture and I would dye things and change everything around. And they really didn't care. Uh, My family was so good to me and let me just be me. And my mother never really cared about it, as long as everything looked good, and it did. And so I think they knew instinctively, as I always say, and I say it so much in my book, my mother knew I was different, and my father did too. Yeah. It was more difficult for my father to accept because he was a macho Italian athlete, baseball player. Sure. So out of five children, he had this one boy that was totally different, <laughs> more beautiful than his daughters. And it's a very, very strange situation. Right. But out of five children, I was the one child he could totally depend on for everything. Yeah. <laughs> and now a quick word from our sponsor. Capital One's checking and savings accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes, which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates. So we're talking about you're not just a good designer. You are sort of you're the elite of your field. You've been talked about in Architectural Digest, in Los Angeles Magazine, and many other magazines. You've worked with some of the biggest celebrities in history, not least of which is Liz Taylor, Telly Savalas, many others. What do you think it is about you that got you to the peak of your game? You know, that's probably my favorite question you've asked me so far. It's because when I came from Birmingham, Alabama to Beverly Hills, California, and because I was such a different looking person, not that I was ugly, I was, I just was different. And when I got into the design business here in California, and I met all of these incredible people that were uh, in show business, I fit right in with them. And because I had this special look, they just loved me. And they took me in under their wings, and I just became their fair-haired designer. And so I, my life became their life, and, and we had the greatest time together. I wasn't just their designer. I was their best friend, whether it was Lana Turner, Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, Telly Savalas, and so many, many, many more who have passed away and left. And then I worked for so many incredible CEOs of major corporations, multi-multi-millionaires. And these people had so much money, but when they heard about me, they couldn't wait to hire me, their husband and wives, to teach them how to spend their money and to live the kind of life that I lived and introduce them to the social world of Beverly Hills. Yeah. Every fine restaurant, the maitre d', the, everyone in the world. But that's what I did because I was known and still known all over Beverly Hills and the world because I just never accepted the fact that I was just a gay man. I had to accept the fact that I was 
known all over the world, and I wanted to be successful, and I wanted my clients to have a kind of life that I had too, and that's what they loved more than anything. We traveled all over the world with my clients, and um, I wouldn't take that. It was the greatest education in the world, seeing, and I've been many places two and three times, Egypt, Africa, all over, you know, and it was a fascinating, interesting study for me as well. You know, it's interesting that some of you, as you may be listening to this, you may think, wow, you've, you're so lucky. You're so fortunate. You just, uh, that your life has been so amazing, but I can't help but think of the saying that luck is when preparedness meets opportunity. And clearly you lived in Alabama in the fifties and sixties as a young gay man. And fortunately you had the support of your family, but I'm sure that the environment probably tested you and you put in the work and you learned and you did work that allowed you to become the person that when the opportunity arose, you were ready for it. It didn't just get handed to you on a plate. You were ready because you had already done the work. You know, and I think that prepared me to be tougher because, uh, you know, growing up in, as you said, in the 50s and 60s in Alabama during the civil rights movement and, you know, being a pretty boy, as I said, you were always called different names. And that was before gay was very open, as you know, very well known. And so it made me tougher and more aware of who I was and that if I'm going to be different, I'm not going to allow anyone to say a word or, or make fun of me. So it made me stronger. And as I say in so many times in my book, instead of ever feeling inferior, I felt superior. And I made that in my work because I made my work superior to anyone else's. And I made it different. I was the original in everything I tried to do, whether it was how I dressed, how I worked, and how I lived my life. Because I was a gay man, that was not going to, it was going to give me the ability to do things that other people can never do. So I excelled in all my work and in my lifestyle, which is how I've wanted to live my whole life. So for the teenage gay boy who's living in Alabama today, who doesn't necessarily have that same constitution, he just doesn't have that, it wasn't born that way necessarily with that mentality, how would you encourage them to sort of adopt that mentality and move forth with, with what they want to do as a career? Either... As you said, a gay boy who in the South, be sure of yourself and know who you are and know what you want to do. And don't let anyone tell you that you can't do something. The word can't doesn't exist in my vocabulary because I did things that and no one could, can't, can say I can't do. I did them. And if they were a mistake, I corrected it. And I did it over again. I say that in my book as well. I made mistakes, but I went back and I corrected them. That's why so many times I do things myself instead of having someone else do it. I don't want to blame them if it was wrong. I just go back and redo it and do it myself the right way. So young men and young women also, you have the right to be yourself. Today, more importantly, we all have to be ourselves. But now young people coming up, they're so intimidated by people and so afraid. Don't be afraid. Just go out there and be strong and live your life the best way you can and always try to be the best person you can. Absolutely. I I will 
listen to this over again <laughs> and over again, what you just said there. It's, it, it's amazing. And for the rest of you, as you listen to this, I, I would suggest maybe going back and listening to this over again, what he just said, the strength can come from within us. John is going to love me for this because you just said the word can't is not in your vocabulary. And no. it reminded me of, <laughs> of a Madonna song where she <laughs> says, I can't, I can't are two just separated by two words. And it's clearly, this is something that you've done. You've taken that T and you've thrown that out and you've brought that O in and you've turned yourself into an icon in your own mind, in your own right. And it's not that you, it's clearly that not that you pushed yourself out there as superior to everyone. You just made yourself inside as confident, as strong as anyone who could ever try to overcome you. I love that. Well, that was the secret of my life because I never wanted, I, I didn't want to feel, take second seat to anyone. And I don't today because I made it that way. It's not that I'm better than anyone, but no one's better than me. Yeah. We're all on the same level. Right. We're just sometimes more fortunate than other people because as I say so many times, you being at the right place at the right time is so important. And when you have something, an interview or an opening of something, be sure and walk in there like you own the place, that you know that you're going to get the job and you are well equipped to do this job. Don't go in there saying, oh, I'm not sure if I'm good enough to do this. Bullshit. You're strong <laughs> enough and you're best enough to do it. Go in there and do it and prove to yourself that I prove to anyone that you can do it. Yep. Can I get a hell yeah on that one? I love that. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about it. No, that's no not at all. We already, we already, I'm, we already I, got the... I'm Sicilian. We already got the ex I, I, I say it like it is. I don't play games. Sophia awesome. would be proud. I didn't play games as a child. I certainly can't play them at this age. No, not at all. And I have no intention to. You know, uh, it was very important for me to set standards for people coming up today and growing up and, and wanting to be a designer or whatever. And to set a standard, because people look at me and when we go across the country, and whether it's with the book or the documentary that I have, people ask me, young people, young women and men, how could you have lived this incredible life? We want to be a part of that. We want to do that. And I try to tell them, you can do this. Believe in yourself. Don't ever give up. And you can have everything and more. Just believe in yourself. Wonderful. I'm curious, do you practice any regular rituals to stay grounded, creative, or healthy, you know, such as exercise, meditation, anything in particular that, that you practice on a regular basis? Years ago, I was uh, I worked out with weights many, many years, and that was my great exercise. But then, I'm sure you've heard, I had a liver transplant. It'd be 10 years in March. Are you aware of that? Yes, that we are. Okay. So after the liver transplant, it's just um, exercising wasn't the greatest part of my life anymore. And so now I do, I still do a little bit of exercising, a lot of walking, but I don't do a lot of meditating. I do a lot of praying because prayer has been a great part of my life. Being a Catholic and going through so many tragedies in my life, my upbringing as a Catholic has really been a great help to me, and my prayer has really gotten me through everything, especially through my liver transplant. Without that, I would not be alive. And um, it's been an incredible support. I could not have gotten through all the tragedies I have suffered through without prayer and my belief in God. Wonderful. It's good to know. 
And I think that's a great segue in, into the next question, which sort of touches on what you just mentioned. Many in the LGBTQ community struggle with, with drugs and alcohol. And I know that you'd recently quit drinking, not that you were necessarily an alcoholic, but I think quitting drinking for many is sort of giving up sort of their, their social outlet. And so I wonder, you know, can you explain why and how you decided to just quit cold turkey? You know, I think that's the best question you've asked me in this interview. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it really is. It's the most important question. And when I was faced with the reality of death, and this was 10 years, 11 years ago, and I was in total denial. I knew I had cirrhosis of the liver, and it had started from having hepatitis many, many years ago, and it went into cirrhosis. And I was given the, I was told by a doctor, and he was a very rude doctor, but however, I think he saved my life, that I was going to die, and that was in October when I saw him, and then he said I wouldn't live to see Christmas if I didn't stop drinking. So I was thrown with this terrible, terrible decision to make. And I left his office and I said to myself, I have three decisions, three options I can make. I can drive my new Jaguar off a cliff and end this whole thing. I can go to the nearest bar and get shit-faced drunk. <laughs> or I could just completely stop drinking and never have a drink again and live and have the sur surgery. And I did. That The third one was my option. And here I am 10 years later happily married and successfully in business and having a wonderful life. But I just gave it up cold turkey. I said, you know what? It was, wasn't worth it to me. Yeah. As much as I love drinking and no one in the world loved me drinking more than <laughs> I did, it was my way of life. Mm -hmm. So I had to change my way of life to coincide with my health. And I chose to be healthy. And you know what? It hasn't changed my life at all. I go to all the parties. I give it all the parties. People drink around me. I have my iced tea or whatever. And my life goes on, but I just can't be around people who get sloppy drunk. That's what I don't like. <laughs> Even in my drinking days, I never got sloppy drunk. And I couldn't stand people who did. So it changed my life somewhat for the better. Fortunately, I never got into the drug scene. And so many of my friends did. And a combination of alcohol and drugs is really lethal. So I was fortunate that I just quit drinking, never went to a meeting, never anything. I just said, no, this is not, no, no longer for me, because my life revolved, and especially when I was with Luana Turner and all the wonderful, like Elizabeth Taylor and all these wonderful people, they loved alcohol. They loved drinking. It was just, as I said, the way of life. Right. And I still saw those people. I just didn't enjoy the cocktails with them. And um, I lost a lot of my friends that through alcoholism, they died. And I tried to help them. It was very disgusting that I could not save their lives. They were just determined to go ahead and continue on doing what I told them not to do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, everyone has to do their own thing. Yes, right. I'm curious, the first social engagement you had to go to after you decided to quit drinking, how challenging was that? Oh, you know, it's interesting because um, after three months of having a liver transplant, I couldn't go to anything. My immune system was so weak and so low that the doctors didn't want me to be out in public. And they, of course, they didn't want me to be anywhere near alcohol. And so I asked him, it's in my book, if I could go to a, a baby shower for one of my girlfriends who's having her grandchildren's baby sh shower. And I wanted to see all my lady friends and friends. And so I went to it. 
And of course, everyone was drinking and having a good time. And this was three months after my surgery. And I looked at everyone drinking and enjoying. And here I was sipping iced tea or something. And it was just okay. Yeah. I realized some things in life you just have to accept. And I accepted it totally. And I went on, as I said, 10 years later, mm -hmm. I'm still accepting it. And there's just, if you want to live and enjoy your life and be successful, there are just some things you have to give up. Thank you. I appreciate that. You win some. And, and you lose some. You lose some. And sometimes you know, the losses I would aren't that. Have yeah. had a successful life. I would have never been able to written a book or done a documentary of all the things that successful things that I'm doing and have such a successful career if I'd have continued on with the alcohol or drinking. It just, there was never, it was never going to happen. And I sometimes think if I had stopped 30 years ago, God knows what I could have done. But you know what? I am in my life where I am supposed to be, doing what I'm supposed to be, and I'm happy. Absolutely. Likewise. Don't so, look back. Thank you. <laughs> Please tell our listeners a little bit about your new book. And, I, and, and start off, if you don't mind, with the title, 13 Pieces of Unmatched Luggage and My Poodle. <laughs> That's great. Well, it's a very <laughs> unusual title. And we spent about six months, and I had people helping me come up with the title of the book. And then one morning I woke up about three in the morning, I sat up in bed and I said, oh my God, why don't I just title the book exactly how I arrived to California 51 years ago, 13 pieces of unmatched luggage and my poodle. And of course, I got a lot of static from a lot of my lady friends saying, Bernardo, you, you don't have anything that's unmatched. <laughs> well, at that time I did, you know, so that was how the book title You pulled the started. curtain back. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I'm. I'm very happy with the title, and I hope someday we'll make a wonderful Broadway show. <laughs> That'd be awesome. That'd be great. And so the book on. is a bio autobiography? Autobiography, yes. Wonderful. And it starts from childhood all the way up to today, I suppose. Absolutely. Childhood up to existing time right now. So I, I think if you're listening to this episode and Bernardo has inspired you in some way, shape, or form, and you want to dive deeper into his story and, and to chart your path to success, definitely recommend going out there and purchasing 13 Pieces of Unmatched Luggage and My Poodle. When and where can our listeners go buy the book when it becomes available? You can go to my website. Everything's on there. Bernardo Puccio. I'm going to spell it. B-E-R-N-A-R-D-O-P-U-C-C-I-O. Dot com, and you can order it through that, and you can also follow everything that I'm doing on my website. Please go on it and contact me. I'd love to talk to anybody that needs advice if I can help. Wonderful. Thank you. If there was one stream of thought or one thing that people got from your book, what do you hope that is? The one thing and the one particular reason that I wrote my book, I would say the main reason I wrote my book. As sick as I was, and I was, as I said earlier, I was in such denial, and I was not going to have the transplant that had been offered to me for over a year, that if one person reads my book, especially the chapter on the liver transplant, and gets advice from me and encouragement, and it saves their life, then my book is totally worth writing, because that is the most important message of this book is that if you were sick, whether it's cancer, AIDS, liver, whatever it is, God forbid, there is a chance. Believe in God, believe in yourself, and believe in the doctors, because they do know what they're doing. 
and see medicals to help and get help and survive it like I did. I have no regrets. Awesome. Wonderful. That's great. You've clearly had a an amazing life. Lots of success, I think, both personal uh, and in your spirituality and outward success in the things that you've been able to do, the people that you've been able to spend time with, and probably the things that you've had in your life. So when you look at all of that, what is one thing that you would share with our listeners that if they did they could achieve some level of success in their own life. Not necessarily exactly what you did, but maybe some piece of advice that you would give our listeners. Well, I want to give the listeners some advice, whether he or she believe that they have a talent, a God-gifted talent, go out there and do the best they can and try to always believe in yourself. It's the most important thing in the world because if you don't believe in yourself, no one else is. And when you go in for interviews and you're trying to sell yourself, believe you are the best. And believe me, whoever's interviewing you will feel that. Right. It's a vibrational thing, right? If you're yes. emitting that vibration of confidence, of capability, then people that read will be it. Up. They feel it. Yeah. It comes through. Believe me, it comes through in how you talk and how you look at and feel about yourself. Don't go in and feel, oh, well, I'm not that great, but I'm, you know, don't ever have insecurity. Feel secure because if a person is interviewing you, they're going to feel that security and they know that's what they want to hire. And that's what they want working for them. Someone who knows what they're doing and feels comfortable with that. So don't be insecure. You know, God gives us the talent and inside. And we all didn't have the upbringing. I didn't have any really support uh, to just uh, go out and do my things. I I created that myself, I must say. It wasn't until I met my first lover in Alabama, and he really gave me a lot of self-confidence. He believed in me truly, and he was a great inspiration in my life. That's wonderful. And I I ask our audience to please heed Bernardo's advice. I mean, he's worked with some of the greats like Liz Taylor and Rock Hudson as and many others that he mentioned earlier. If he can go into meetings with them feeling confident, (laughs) you can go into whatever meeting or opportunity that you have feeling confident as well. I love it when I was growing up. I mean, I was working as an interior designer in Beverly Hills for so many years, and I would be in the conference call uh, conference rooms with the large C many many CEOs of corporations and here I was the only gay man in the room obviously <laughs> and they would look at me and say well Bernardo what do you think we should do about this and you know damn well I will answer those questions like <laughs> I knew what the hell I was talking about exactly and they would look at me and they said damn we would have never thought of that but that's how I am I come through this god gifted ability to speak and to say how I feel. Uh, I don't hold anything back. I don't always say, I wish I'd have said that. No, I said it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, okay. And that's that's been a God gift uh, that I can feel and say what I feel. That's awesome. Well, wonderful. That's well, amazing. thank you very much for giving us the gift of your time as well as for putting into words uh, the, your life so that other people can follow and learn from you. So thank you very much. We appreciate you. Well, it's been a great pleasure speaking to both of you, and I hope to meet you in person someday. We'd love to do that. Don't you just love Bernardo's story? To enter to win a copy of Bernardo's book, write a quick review of Queer Money on the podcasting app you're using. Take a screenshot of it, then post it on Instagram or Facebook, tagging at Debt Free Guys. One lucky person is going to get a copy of his book in the mail.
Thank you, Bernardo, for sharing your wonderful and inspiring story with us on Queer Money. How exciting and inspiring. No doubt you have inspired countless others to be their best, and there's no better legacy than that. Finally, it's not just about having an amazing life and career. Your amazing career and the hard-earned money you make should give you financial security. However, so many people, even those with six-figure incomes, don't take advantage of the money they earn because of thinking errors ingrained in our brain. What are those thinking errors and how do you overcome them? Find out from our latest ebook, The Seven Thinking Errors That Prevent Financial Success. Get the ebook at debtfreeguys.com forward slash 175. Thank you and have a great week. To learn more about how our sponsor, Capital One, is reimagining their local spaces and experiences to have banking better fit your life, visit www.capitalone.com and follow them on social at Capital One Cafe. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.